reading is Psalm 13 on page 387 of your Pew Bible. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Um, the next reading is Luke on page 742, 17:20. The coming of the kingdom of God, once having been asked by the um, Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, "The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed." Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot, People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the house step with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is dead body, there the vultures will gather. The parable of the persistent widow. 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, 
Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what he unjust, the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice to the, his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Thanks be to God. Oh, sorry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Gudrun. Uh, I'd encourage you to have open that passage we just read from uh, Luke. If uh, you're new or visiting amongst us, it's great uh, to have you here with us today. And uh, we've been looking at uh, Jesus' journey as he's headed down towards Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him, uh, his death on our behalf. He headed there regardless. Uh, It's a journey we've been looking at for the last few weeks, and it's a journey he invites us to follow him with, uh, to seek after him and be his disciples. Uh, It's a hard call, and so we need God's spirit uh, and help that we might actually follow after him. Let's pray that uh, he might speak to us. Our Lord and Father, we thank you. Uh, We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his willingness uh, to go and suffer that we might have life. Uh, We thank you for uh, his death that brings forgiveness. And Father, we thank you that he uh, speaks to us even now by your word. And Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and minds to humble us and soften our hearts that we might delight in what you have to say to us and we might be changed and transformed to all the more look and appear and act like the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, In his uh, modern guru column for the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, Danny Katz wrote this about Christians' interest in justice and the state of the world. Everyone knows Christians have no passion for retaining a livable world. They just want to die, go to heaven and sit on puffy cloud stools dipping crackers into Philadelphia cheesy dips like those angels on the TV ad. You kind of go, yeah, right. You know, his statement is completely over the top, isn't it? Uh, He and and popular atheists like uh, Christopher Hitchens, who who, uh, claim that religion poison everything, uh, are ignoring large slabs of evidence. And it's easy to kind of go... When they say that to us, uh, you know, Christians have had a strong interest in the welfare of others and this world. Uh, from early believers shaming the Roman authorities because they cared not just for their own poor, but for all the poor in, uh, in their midst. Uh, through to you know, Wilberforce's anti-slavery laws, to, to modern movements like the Micah Challenge. Christians are and have been concerned about justice. So we know his statement, it's over the top, uh, not to mention his kind of bad representation of heaven. But we also know our hunger for both justice and heaven is often lacking. And perhaps the lack of hunger for it is because we're so well fed. Uh, Australia ranks seventh as the least corrupt nation in the world. New Zealand won. <laughs> Losing to New Zealand. Uh, Now, you know, what's that mean? We're not perfect, but we don't feel injustice on the large scale because generally we're the beneficiaries of injustice. So World Vision make this statement. uh, When around 20% of the world's people in the richest countries 
use 86% of the world's resources and the poorest 20% use only 1.3%, the inequality is painfully obvious. And yet it isn't painfully obvious to us, is it? Um, It's actually comfortably ignored by us. Again, an estimated 30,000 children die each day because of poverty-related causes such as lack of immunisation. In contrast, parents in Australia receive $227.90 of maternity immunisation allowance if they fully immunise their child. So often we are the recipients of good favour. Injustice works to our benefit. That we only kind of rile up about injustice when you know we receive that questionable speeding fine. There's no way I was got the camera's broken, surely, you know, or or we're overlooked for the promotion that you know really we deserve that work. We we know on one side that Danny Katz is wrong, saying we're disinterested in in uh, the patterns of this world and justice. But also for me, certainly, I see the disconnect in my knowledge and my action about. Justice and injustice. Jesus' words this morning remind us that God is profoundly interested in justice. Uh, Those final words we read, 18.7, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see they get justice and quickly. God is profoundly interested in justice uh, and if we claim to follow him, it must matter to us. As we look through what Jesus has to say to us this morning, two things for us to hang on to. One, true justice is coming. And secondly, persist in asking for that day. True justice is coming, persist in asking for it. True justice, first of all, is coming. Uh, The passage that we read is an extended teaching from Jesus on the coming kingdom of God. Uh, It climaxes with that promise that God will bring justice to those who cry out, that he won't keep putting them off. But there's a sharp edge, you may have noticed, in verse 8. 18.8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? See, true justice is coming, but will people be able to survive it? So at the start of reading in 1720, the Pharisees raised the topic of God's kingdom. You know, when will the kingdom come? Uh, Luke doesn't give us any editorial notes about the tone they ask in. Uh, for, for the Jews in Jesus' time, the coming of God's kingdom meant deliverance, deliverance from foreign oppressions, uh, oppressors. Uh, it, it meant true justice would come. Uh, it's possible that's what even the Pharisees were asking about. They were longing for that time of deliverance. Given their self-righteous confidence, it seems more than likely that they're, they're, you know, they're not worried about you know, needing to know the time so they can do a last-minute repentance. They're pretty confident when he comes, they'll be found on the right side. It may even be that these guys are asking a question to mock Jesus. Um, several chapters ago, earlier in Jesus' ministry, he announced he's bringing the kingdom, but injustice is still going on. It may be they're going, oh, when's God's kingdom going to come? Chuckle, 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 you know, because you've claimed so much and it still doesn't look like it's happening. But Jesus wants to carefully point out whatever their reason for asking the question of when is the kingdom going to come, the issue is not when or where, but will you be found ready? So he deals with the Pharisees first. They ask for signs uh, when the evidence of God's kingdom uh, coming is before them. Uh, When will it arrive? Well, Jesus says in verse 20, the kingdom does not come with your careful observation. 
nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is, in our version, within you, at Gudrun helpfully read, uh, amongst you. Uh, they look for signs, and all the while Jesus has been there preaching and healing and driving out demons, the, the, the forces of Satan. The only sign of true justice coming they needed was the fact that Jesus was amongst them. The sign was there, but they refused to look. And so he leaves them to the side and and brings his disciples in in verse 22, people who've already recognised that the kingdom has come in Jesus. His presence is among them. And he explains to them what the kingdom's arrival will be like. And he explains it's not going to be until he suffers in verse 25, he's going to suffer for us and for our salvation. But when it does come, It will be swift and divisive and absolute. He explains it will be swift, like in Noah's time, uh, where people were getting on with the normality of life. In verse 27, they're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying. There's no sense that the end of the world is going to happen any moment because they're getting on and marrying, planning life ahead, wonder what the kids, the grandkids will be like, thinking through all that kind of way. And then without notice, the Son of Man is going to be revealed swiftly in all his glory. It will happen in a moment. Verse 31, on that day, no one who's on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. In those days, houses were built. um, Roof was a nice kind of spacious area. You could kind of relax and uh, enjoy the view perhaps. Um, But the, the, the stairs to get up there were external. Uh, rather than internal. And and so swift is his coming, there's no time even to race down the side, get inside and grab your stuff. Christ's first coming was relatively unnoticed, except by a handful of people. His final coming will be unmissed. Swift and divisive. Verse 34, I tell you that on that night, two people will be in one bed, one will be taken, the other left, Two will be grinding grain together, one will be taken, the other left. Uh, he's not saying that it'll be kind of some mysterious rapture uh, and people won't know what's going on. Where did that person go? No, no, it's simply a, a picture to explain how when the kingdom comes, the only category that matters is whether people are converted or unconverted. It won't matter if people have worked together, if they have lived together, if they have slept together. When Christ returns, there is only one allegiance that matters. Your work and your family will not be the grounds by which God judges, but your knowledge and response to Christ. Swift, divisive and absolute. In verse 37, you see the disciples are still asking the wrong question. They're asking, oh, where? Where will this devastation occur? As though somehow, you know, they might you know, make sure they don't turn up there. Uh, they might get to avoid it though. Now Jesus answers, Uh, Where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. He's deflecting their misguided question to remind them they actually need to feel the seriousness of true justice coming. They don't need to worry about where it might happen as though it can be avoided. No, no, the the day when the sun comes, it will be a day of complete judgment. And when he finishes, uh, like the aftermath of a battlefield, uh, only the vultures will remain over a field of carcasses. Uh, It's an image that's designed to move our souls, cause action and response. See, true justice is coming. Christ will establish his rule completely. Uh, And for those of us who who perhaps benefit from injustice, it doesn't seem that appealing. But for those who cry out to the Lord day and night for relief, this is a word of comfort. 
There will be a time when justice is established or all that oppose Christ and his rule will be done away with. Whether they've done injustice on the big scale of you know, cruel dictatorships or war criminals or those small injustices that we're all prone to. Small, unrepentant injustices of pride or gossip or white lies or envy. You know, on that day, everyone will receive what they desire. That's why Jesus points us in verse 32 to Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. She was offered salvation, but her heart was in the city of destruction. And so she got what she desired when the judgment came. C.S. Lewis' book, The Great Divorce, um, helpfully captures the, the justice of God's absolute judgment. Um, it's not a book about marriage, in case you're interested. It's a book about the, the great separation between those who are in heaven and those in hell. Um, it, it's a fantasy, it's a parable. It describes uh, the plot of the, the book, describes a busload of people who are taken on a day trip from, uh, from hell to the outlying parts of heaven. And there they're urged uh, to, to leave their sins behind. And over and over again, they refuse. Because their addictions in life, their, their self-delusion, their self-absorption, they have been so consumed by them, they actually desire to be in hell. Now, now in hell, the, the people there are, are miserable in Lewis's parable because their, their pride and their paranoia and their self-pity and their rage all, all go unchecked. And all the while they, they blame others and they refuse to say sorry and they refuse to return to God. You know, it's not, we must get this picture out of our head, it's not that God is sending you know, busloads of people to hell who are crying out for him and, and seek to come back. No, no, it's the opposite. Uh, damnation is painted as an addiction. Uh, Lewis's parable makes it clear that, that hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. Uh, that, to quote him, Milton was right. The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than live in heaven. There is always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. And again, later he writes, there are only two types of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those, to those who knock, it will be opened. That's why we need to remember Lot's wife in verse 32. She was given her desire. So she was warned of the coming judgment on Sodom, uh, and so her husband Lot took um, her and their daughters and they fled. She had the privilege of being married to a righteous man. She knew the reality of absolute justice coming. She knew what the fate of the city was going to be, and yet she turned back. It's not, it's not the idea that she just glanced back out of interest, but, but that looking back with longing revealed what she didn't want to leave behind. Uh, it's Jesus' warning, isn't it, in verse 32 and, and on in three, uh, 33. Remember Lot's wife, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. So there are some in this city who will be found unready for true justice return because the things they love and desire and hang on to are that which will be destroyed, are that which oppose God. 
might also reason that some who come to this church will be found unready. Jesus gives this warning not just to the Pharisees but to his disciples, his followers. Remember Lot's wife. Is there any reason why you wouldn't want Christ to return at this moment? Is there anything you wouldn't want to have given up? Is there anything so valuable here that you must hang on to? Is this world too appealing? Remember Lot's wife. Privilege, company, even a warning are not enough. A commitment to this dying, unjust world over commitment to the king who suffered and died for you will find you unprepared. Jesus is clear, true justice is coming, but will he find faith in earth? Will he find faith in you? And should he, um, what do do we faithful do in the meantime? What do we do do as we're waiting for his return? Well, Jesus' surprising advice is that we should ask for the day. Verse 1, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So persist in asking for that day. So um, we've already seen a a wonderful reenactment by Paul of the uh, story of uh, chapter 18. Uh, Jesus tells a story where a widow is pitted against a corrupt judge. The judge is described as fearing neither God nor respecting men. That is, he takes bribes, he plays favourites, he doesn't give justice. Uh, In verse 3, we meet the widow who is forced to defend her and plead her own cause. Uh, Normally, you would have a son or a close male relative go to court on behalf of a widow. Uh, The idea here, though, is that she doesn't have someone to do that for her. No one will stand up for her. But finally, she receives justice. Why? Because she persists. She begs, she pleads, she nags. Uh, The language of verse 5, being worn out, is, is the same expression as being given a black eye. Um, She's basically in his face all the time, asking, asking, asking. And he's ground down. So even though he's not getting his usual bribe, he'll give her the justice she asks for, just to get rid of her. And Jesus' point in verse 7, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see they get justice and quickly. Uh, The answer to the questions are uh, yes and no. Um, Yes, he will give justice. No, he won't put it off. God genuinely listens to the cries of his people. Uh, He hears them, listens, takes it on board. He will bring justice. True justice is coming. And I think what I find surprising about where Jesus takes this is after saying justice is coming, he doesn't go and give a heavy burden to go, go and seek justice. It's right to go and seek justice. We should have a heart like God's. The prophet Micah uh, reminds us that our duty is to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God. And and the prophet Amos calls for a time where where justice will roll on like a river um, and righteousness will uh, flow like a a never-failing stream. If if we know that God treasures justice, we should have a passion to do what's right in this world. It's why our church is having, you know, The year of living generously this year is 2009. Uh, Yesterday, it it was right to run a fair trade market uh, at church to to help our community be aware of the wider community. Uh, We did a food and clothing appeal for for those in need over the holiday period. Uh, These are all good things. Even on the small scale, we can act for justice. Uh, As Mother Teresa put it, 
Uh, if you can't feed 100 people, feed one. You know, simply fostering empathy for other people can be a great step for us to take so that we would become people who act justly. Um, justice is not giving everyone the same treatment. It, it's, it's treating people appropriately for who they are and what their circumstances are. And yet after explaining the fact that justice is coming, Jesus doesn't go on and give a story about how you better work harder at doing justice because you better watch out because, you know, he's coming and it'll all be sorted. No, no, he doesn't say that at all, actually. That, that might have been something I would do. <laughs> Thankfully, Jesus doesn't do that. Something better. Pray. Pray persistently. Don't look to ourselves to bring justice, but entrust yourself to the one who will come and the one who hears. God will grant justice in ways that our efforts will never match. Yes, take up things like the mica challenge, but realise they're band-aid solutions. They're poor imitations of the kind of justice God will bring when he arrives. In some ways, you might find this actually a harder request. Uh, Many years ago, I... I, uh, started tying my prayer for Jesus' return to when I shower, uh, just because I didn't want to neglect it, and uh, you'll be happy to know showering is not something I neglect. Uh, I've got to say, in all times I've persisted in showering, uh, but my prayer for the Lord's return hasn't always persisted. It's hard to persist in praying for that, for all sorts of reasons. You know, it's hard because we're proud you know, the call to, to persistent prayer is an acknowledgement we can't do it alone. And we live in a society that, that just keeps sending a message over and over again that your worth comes from your achievement. But prayer is hard because it humiliates you. I find it so much easier to do an act of justice that I could tick off and say, if I did that, uh, which is measurable rather than kind of the time I pray, which can't really be measured in the same way. It's hard to pray. I'm proud. It's hard to pray because if you're like me, you're lazy and prone to distraction. Uh, it's not surprising in Colossians 4 that Epaphras is described as wrestling in prayer. It's like a wrestle, isn't it? It's just hard. It's a lot more effort than watching TV. Uh, or even, I'd suggest, taking time for exercise. Uh, it's hard because because it requires some level of focused self-denial. As we pray, we, we consider God, we consider others rather than just considering ourselves. And we're just so easily distracted, at least I am. Um, I often connect... My, my prayer to Bible reading and, and then I, I start in prayer and I'm praying for someone and then I remember, oh, that's right, I need to catch up with them. And so then I'm writing a list of things I need to do and you know, there's a lot to be said for having a, a pre-written list of issues and people to pray for just to keep looking back to that rather than the new lists you create. And perhaps you find Jesus' instruction hard to keep praying for persistently because... There are bits of us that are ambivalent about true justice coming. You know, like, like Lot's wife, we can be tempted to think this world is just a bit too good. There's things going on I don't want to miss out on. I, I wouldn't want Jesus to come before this happened. Or, or we don't want the ones we love to actually receive their desires on that last day. On the Micah Challenge website, I found some examples of prayers for justice. Um, Here are some. God of justice, give us courage and persistence to work for justice for those most affected by environmental degradation and climate change. Another. God of mercy, hear the cry of the poor who are already suffering and will continue to suffer water and food shortages and who will be displaced by climate change. Uh, There are another 22 like that. They were good prayers. But there's one thing I noticed in these prayers for justice not one of them mentioned the return of Jesus. 
Not one of them asked for him to come back. And I compare that to a prayer in the, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Uh, the prayer actually for today, today's Advent Sunday. Yeah, if you didn't know, you might have noticed we've got purple curtains instead of the white. Yeah, well spotted. Um, we're celebrating Advent, remembering that Jesus came to the world once and we're asking for his return to come again. This is the prayer for Advent Sunday. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Now in the time of this mortal life, in which your son Jesus Christ came among us in great humility, that on the last day when he comes again in glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead, we may rise to life immortal. Now, I don't raise it to denigrate the Micah Challenge. Uh, They do good work and it's a good thing to join. Um, It's still good to pray for those things. But Luke 18 pushes us further and to pray for the big issue of justice, his return. And I wonder whether we just have less confidence these days to pray for that kind of absolute justice than Christians did 500 years ago. Because we pray from a position of comfort. Uh, Injustice benefits us. Whereas the prayer book was, was forged in an era of political instability and warfare and disease and regime change and people longing for real justice. Jesus doesn't lay the pressure of fixing the world on us. But he does challenge us to passionately plead for it because it's only in his return that true justice will come. And so we pray and we persist and we beg and we plead and like that widow we nag. That that Advent prayer is one we need to pray every day. Come, Lord Jesus. Because he won't keep putting it off. He will listen. He will see that we who ask for it get justice and quickly. I want to give you a moment just to quietly pray and bring it before God. Lord and Father, forgive us for the times where we're content with the injustice of this world. We thank you that you uh, have a future where real justice and righteousness will reign. We pray that you would bring that day swiftly. Father, prepare each and every one of us that we might be ready on that day, that we might remember Lot's wife, And then we might turn and find our hope in the Lord Jesus who died that we might have life. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.